Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy. The bottom line is we all are affected by dementia one way or another. I'm your host, Alan Weil. Roughly 6 million adults ages 65 and older in the United States have dementia, with the number projected to more than double by 2050. Family caregivers play an essential role in caring for people with dementia, from help with dressing to assistance eating and so much more. In 2020, it's estimated that more than 11 million family members and other unpaid caregivers provided care to people with dementia. But what about those who don't have family members who can provide this needed care? The availability of family members to provide care to adults with dementia is the topic of today's health policy. I'm here with Wajung Choi, a research assistant professor at the University of Michigan. Dr. Choi and colleagues published a paper in the September 2021 issue of Health Affairs studying the availability of family members to provide this care. Using survey data, they found that 18% of dementia patients received care from their spouse and 27% received it from an adult child. They identified racial disparities in caregiver availability and much more, which we'll be discussing today. Dr. Choi, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. I'm so happy to have you with us today. Let's start with the population you studied. Uh, How common is dementia? What does it mean to have dementia in terms of requiring assistance with daily activities? Do folks with dementia mostly live at home? Just give us a sense of the population that you focused on. Thank you for the question. Our study focuses on people age 55 and older who have a dementia. Dementia itself is not a specific disease, but is a broad term that has been used to describe a group of symptoms, including difficulties with memory and other thinking severe enough to affect a person's ability to perform daily activities. It can be caused by various uh, diseases. The most common cause of uh, dementia is uh, Alzheimer's disease, accounting more than about 60% of dementia. According to recent report from Alzheimer's Association, as you mentioned, more than 6 million people aged 65 and older in the United States have uh, Alzheimer's dementia. This means more than one in nine people age 65 and older have Alzheimer's dementia. The rate increases substantially with age. More than one in three of people age 85 and older have dementia. So with the population aging, as you mentioned also, the projected number of people with dementia by 2050 is more than double the number now, says about 30 million. And some people with dementia may manage most daily activities quite well, but most people with dementia are likely to have at least one of daily activities. In our study, we focus on basic activities of daily living, say ADLs. Our measure of ADLs includes six activities, eating, toileting, and bathing, and getting dressed, and walking across rooms and getting in and out of bed. 
And more than 60% of our study samples, people with dementia and at least one ADL limitation. So one of the things uh, that makes dementia care unique is the level of care that people with dementia need. When a person with dementia has difficulty with these basic activities for living, that person is likely to need around-the-clock help. I don't mean necessarily around-the-clock hands-on help, but a person with dementia with basic activity limitation is likely to need constant attention for safety as well, right? And in our study sample, age 60, age actually 55 and uh, dementia, uh, I'm sorry, age 55 and older with dementia, about 77% live in the community. But that rate is uh, lower among those with dementia who also have a basic activity limitation, which is uh, about 66%. So this is a very common condition. It's becoming increasingly common with an aging population. And as you say, most of these folks are at home. Um, they're dependent on what is called in the literature informal care. What, what is informal care? What makes it informal? What makes it different from formal care? Who's providing this informal care? Yes, the term informal care is not really clear, but we use the term informal care because despite the critical role in the healthcare system, it is not formally integrated in the healthcare system where the care is compensated in a formal way. I know it's uh, not clear, <laughs> but still, but that's how we uh, use uh, the term informal care in our study. And in our measure of informal care, we included any care from family members and other relatives and friends and volunteers. So uh, mostly not, uh, not paid uh, uh, officially, right? About 11 million um, family members and other informal caregivers provided care to people with dementia in 2020, according to the recent report from Alzheimer's Association. Depending on how we calculate the monetary value of the informal care, it would vary a lot, but it is indeed substantial. The total monetary value of informal care could be even as much as the amount spent on paid care for dementia in the United States, which is estimated about $350 billion. In other words, without care from family members and other informal helpers, the amount spent on paid care could be even double the amount. And in a community setting, care for people with dementia is mostly provided by adult children, especially daughter and spouse. The spouse provides the most caregiving if they have a spouse. However, majority of people with dementia do not have a spouse. And many of the spouses have their own health problems. In our study sample, about 76% of people with dementia age 55 and older either don't have a spouse or have a spouse who has a difficulty carrying out their own daily activities. And most people with dementia have adult children, about 88%, but they might have 
their own minor children they have to look after, and they might live very far and uh, might have other competing demands, such as uh, working. In our study, among those who have uh, dementia and uh, also difficulty with the basic daily activities, such as eating and walking across rooms, about 18% received help with the basic daily activities from spouse, and 27% received from their adult children, and 20% did not receive any help with the daily activities, despite they have difficulties with that. And 34% are in nursing home. These are not mutually exclusive, some may receive care from multiple sources, for example, from both the spouse and an adult child. So the care needs are substantial, and many people get care from a spouse or a child. Um, your study looked at availability. Is there someone who could provide these services in addition to whether or not they are providing these services? Um, how do you determine from a survey whether or not someone is available? I'm sure it's not a perfect measure, but we have to try to figure this out. So what did it mean to deem someone available to provide care? Yeah, thank you for the question. It's when uh, my colleagues and I uh, working on this uh, research, we realized that despite that we have some detailed information about active caregivers, but we have a little information about potential caregivers, family availability per se, uh, specific for dementia population. So we try to um, come up with this uh, family availability and uh, define family availability based on existing literature. Uh, more specifically, in our study, we focus on spouse and adult child availability. For spouse availability, we looked at whether people with dementia have a spouse or not, whether the spouse has a difficulty with activities of daily living, such as walking across rooms, eating, bathing, toileting, getting in and out of bed, and getting dressed, or other instrumental activities, such as grocery shopping. We looked at whether spouse working full-time or not. For adult child availability, we examined how many adult children they have and whether they have an adult child not working full-time, assuming that they have more availability in that case, and the spatial distance to their children. So we summarize this proximity measure into three categories, having at least one co-resident adult child, having no co-resident adult child, but having at least one adult child living within 10 miles and no adult child within 10 miles. So three categories we uh, separated into. Well, given the tremendous need here and how much people rely on this informal care, who has access to it and who doesn't seems like a critical issue. Your study went into that, and I want to go over the results, um, but we'll do that after we take a short break.
At the Surgical Care Coalition, we're working to protect patients, improve their quality of life, and ensure timely access to quality care. But proposed Medicare cuts to surgical care are devastating to both surgeons and patients. Stop these wrong cuts. Learn more about how you can help us stop these cuts at surgicalcare.org. Perinatal mental health issues, including perinatal depression and other mood disorders, affect many individuals in the U.S. and globally, and can lead to harm to birthing people and children. The October issue of Health Affairs features a cluster of papers on this important topic. It covers issues such as screening and access to treatment, health equity, and policy opportunities. Check the show notes to order your copy today. And we're back. I'm speaking with Dr. Wajong Choi about family availability to provide care to elders with dementia. Before the break, we got sort of the top line picture of availability, but who is available really varies by family characteristics. And that differential availability can have a huge effect on how well families can manage this disease. So let's look at the household characteristics that you found that were correlated with availability to provide care. Who has family members available and who doesn't? Thank you for the question. We found some groups have a significantly less availability of a spouse than other groups, including women, non-Hispanic Black people, and those with lower education and lower economic status have uh, substantially less uh, spousal availability than their counterparts. And when you say substantially less, just give me a ballpark. I know it's different by group, but what does that mean? Yeah, let me share some specific numbers uh, focusing on the rate of having a spouse who does not have uh, activity limitation, meaning they will have a greater availability. So 38% of men with dementia have a spouse who does not have their own disability, but that rate is only about 16% among women with dementia. Another example is 19% of non-Hispanic Black people have a spouse without disability, while over 25% other racial ethnic groups have a spouse without daily activity limitations. So these are big differences. So if we make public policy, assuming certain people do or don't have uh, availability of a family member, of a spouse in this instance, we, we, we're really affecting different groups quite differently. What about on the children's side? Yes, the adult children's availability is quite different from spousal availability almost the opposite. So women, racial ethnic minorities, those with lower education and economic groups have a greater child availability. For example, 27% of women with dementia have at least one adult child co-resident, but 19% of men have a co-resident child. More than 30% of non-Hispanic Black people with dementia have at least one co-resident adult child, but 18% of non-Hispanic white people have a co-resident child. 
it's very interesting. Yeah. So now, of course, with survey data, you can't really get into the why, but it does seem that some of this could be family choices based on the options available to them. So uh, if there is no spouse, then a child may be more likely to move in. If there is a spouse, a child is less likely. So the notion that these sort of offset each other may be due to one being available, the other not, and the one who's available sort of has to step in. Is that sort of how it can work at the family level? Yes, I believe uh, actually the, the what the family kind of resources, uh, uh, how it play in this uh, family dynamics, I believe that's what's happening. So, well, if they have a really great uh, availability in, uh, with the spouse, they're probably less likely to move in as the children because they probably don't have to, but still they are there to step in when they uh, need uh, extra care from the children. So I believe that's exactly what was happening. But there are so many other things also uh, play in this uh, dynamics. Uh, for example, the financial resources, right? Some people with uh, greater uh, financial resources, they might be able to also use other sort of market services to fill in the gaps. Yeah. So let's get to that because you mentioned that sort of the economic value of informal care is approximately equal to the economic value of formal care. So when you're studying people receiving informal care, are they also getting formal care? Is it the same folks or is one substituting for the other? What what do we know about the relationship between receiving and having available family care members and receiving formal care? They can have definitely both either or both the informal and the formal care. But the potential family availability, I think it has a really um, significant uh, influence on determining informal care versus uh, formal care. Uh, we found that having an adult child, especially a crescent adult child, is a significant predictor of using paid care, including nursing home care. More specifically, uh, holding other things a constant, the probability of moving to a nursing home over the subsequent two years is close to 30% if they don't have an adult child among those with uh, dementia and also the ADL, in this case, uh, basic uh, activity at the limitation. That probability is uh, only about 11% if that person has uh, a co-resident adult child. So it makes actually a very big difference. Somehow we could not find the direct link between spousal availability and uh, the formal care uh, use. Uh, I think uh, the care uh, giving is uh, typically happening sequentially. The spouse care first, and if the spouse cannot be there and help, then adult children might step in. And uh, after adult children, probably former care or other relatives. But that's why we see more direct connection between the adult children's availability and the former care. So there's sort of a cascading of responsibility. Well, you know, we're a health policy journal and having these data about availability seem critical to setting policy. Having evidence of such disparities across certain family characteristics 
also seems critical for setting equitable policy. Um, the needs here are overwhelming and they're only going to grow. So when you think about the policy challenges facing the country, where do your findings take you in terms of what policies are needed to assure that people with dementia get the care they need? Yes, indeed. As we uh, discussed earlier, there is a great variation in family availability across the demographic and the socioeconomic groups among people with dementia. In our study, we separated between spouse and adult children's availability because of the sharp contrast in these across the population groups. The cost implications are quite different between care from spouse and adult children, in particular opportunity cost, because spouse and adult children are in different life stage. Most spouses of people with dementia are at their retirement ages, but adult children are their prime working ages. So spousal availability is especially low among women, non-Hispanic Blacks, and those with lower socioeconomic status, which may lead to a greater dependence on adult children for basic activities of daily living among these groups. In other words, there may be an unequal intergenerational spillover effect meaning children of some vulnerable groups defined by race, ethnicity, and economic status may incur more care responsibility and opportunity costs than other groups. So caregiving has many positive aspects as well, of course, but the issue is the extent of caregiving and the associated costs. Some adult children may want to live with their parents and caring for them, but they don't do that because of too many barriers and uh, too high opportunity costs. Given that they have a parent with a dementia in need, not being able to care for them could be also very hard, right? And the bottom line is we all are affected by dementia one way or another. Even if we don't have dementia, now, and we are not providing care for people with a dementia now, the chance of getting dementia and having a family member who has a dementia would be very high in our, if we think about our lifetime, right? And even if we are not exposed to dementia either as a caregiver or care recipients at all, we are still affected because the dementia care will incur significant cost to the public finance as well, such as Medicare and Medicaid. Integrating family members and other informal helpers into the former health care system is likely to be a win-win situation, in my opinion. There may be a tipping point when family members cannot sustain the level and the type of care at home as the disease progress. That's when people with dementia move to a nursing facility, which is the, one of the most expensive care setting. Public home care services and adult care services may not totally substitute care from family members, but 
it is likely to reduce the caregiver's burden and delay or even remove the tipping point. So families with greater financial resources might have been using paid home care and may mitigate some of the adverse impact of high-level care on their lives. But many families caring for persons with dementia do not have financial means to afford a lot of these uh, services. So expanding home care services and adult daycare services will reduce racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic disparities in potential adverse effect of caregiving. Well, that seems really important. Let me just close with a really tough question. We have a long history in this country around our policies of relying on family, thinking of things as family responsibility. As you note, it falls more to women primarily. Um, And we're then nervous about providing public benefits because the cost of substituting out all of that supposedly free labor from the family with paid labor is is a, a burden on the treasury that people can't imagine. So we tend to keep eligibility for these kinds of assistance uh, tight so that we can squeeze as much out of the family as possible and not share that burden across the taxpayer. Given the variation in availability you described, given the growing prevalence of dementia, how do you think about that conflict and where do we go with public policy to not just squeeze families harder and harder, but also not squeeze taxpayers more than they can bear? Thank you. I'm not sure whether it's really a conflict or not. I, I, I haven't actually done the research specifically for that, but I believe actually there are some families who are willing to, but not available because of the level of care is too high and the potential, the opportunity cost and the, all other implications too high for them. But if there's some assistance and they're relieving some, uh, their burden, then they might step in. So we might have uh, even more families stepping in and helping. So my point is actually it should be integrated uh, uh, fully if possible. Where I say informal, so I don't quite like the terminology. So one day I wish we don't have to use the informal care so we don't have uh, that because Family, especially family uh, caregivers, they are the most valuable caregivers for, I mean, in terms of long-term care, right, aspect. So we have this situation, a lot of people relying on the Medicaid for their long-term care, and probably it doesn't have to be that so many people rely on Medicaid, for example. And uh, so... I don't think it's really uh, conflicting between uh, those, uh, uh, I mean, helping the family uh, members uh, for their compensating, for their care, for their loved ones. Uh, It's not necessarily conflicting. It might actually reduce the the total care. Uh, I think it depends on how we do that, right? So the first order condition is that we need to identify exactly what the situation is, uh, how many people really 
potentially available but not being able to provide the care because of uh, this high level of uh, the burden. Well, that seems right. And your uh, research here is a major contribution toward that. So Dr. Choi, I thank you for the work you're doing, the critical information it provides, and for being my guest today on A Health Policy. Thank you so much. I enjoyed the discussion. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about A Health Policy. Health Policy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. The team behind the show includes Patty Sweet, Jeff Byers, Julia Vivolo, Sarah Kolk, and Sue Ducat. Like the show? Subscribe to A Health Policy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening, and have a great morning, day, or evening.